You're listening to The Drew Marshall Show, Canada's most listened to spiritual talk back program. One of television's most recognized game show hosts, Chuck Woolery, was the original host of Wheel of Fortune, but then went on to host Love Connection, The Dating Game, Greed, and Lingo. ChuckWoolery.com is the website. By the way, this is Chuck's very own song he wrote, Naturally Stoned, or I guess it's kind of also known as the, the theme to Goldfinger. Right, Chuck? Yeah, yeah I, I realized after I got in the studio that I that I had uh, plagiarized <laughs> For Goldfinger. I didn't realize until I, actually the song was out for about, I don't know, three months, and I kept thinking, why did that thing sound so familiar? And of course, I know I wrote it, but oh my gosh, it's the theme to Goldfinger. I hate when that happens. Well, listen, I, you know, I, I can't imagine that it took you any longer than 15 minutes to throw all those suspended A's together, seriously. Actually, that's, uh, that's exactly what happened. I'd never played a suspended A before, and I sat down in my living room and probably 15 minutes wrote that song. <laughs> it, it didn't take very long. Roger Miller once described my musical career as riding the crest of an undertow. <laughs> I always wanted to have a quote from Roger Miller. Man. Well, I got one. If I ever write a book, that's what the title's going to be. I, I love it. That's perfect. So listen, how are things in Texas? You've been out uh, throwing out the moto lures today, or you've been out uh, to... I was. Yeah, I've been, I fished last night, as a matter of fact, but uh, not this morning. Did you get a high pressure, low pressure coming through? Any changes? No, it was, it's been pretty consistent here. It's about 84 and uh, a little bit cloudy, but beautiful down here. Really pretty. It's on the lake. I'm, I'm, I'm right on Lake LBJ, uh, just north of uh, Austin. And, uh, of course, it's Memorial Day weekend, so everybody's here with their boats screaming and yelling, so it's kind of fun. You know, the biggest thing I've found successful with the smallies up here is uh, a little thing called a Texas rig. Boy, that works good up in the weeds up here. Yeah, Texas rig's great. That's great, yeah. Are we going to talk fishing? That's great, Drew. I had no idea we were going to talk fishing. I just had a guy call me about three weeks ago, and he said, Hey, listen, would you, you know a place called Divine, Texas? And I said, No, but I want to go there. And he said, well, we're going to fish what they call tanks down here, which are really great big farm ponds. They're like, you know, 18 acres or 20 acres. They're huge. And uh, he said, I'm a fly fisherman, but I'd like to see what it's like to fish with a bass fisherman. I said, okay, I'm NASCAR, and you're Abercrombie and Fish, old school. So, I mean, I don't know how that's going to go together. <laughs> but I caught him about 20 to 1. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. You know, there's a, there's a guy, the biggest guy up our way is a guy named Bob Azumi. Have you ever heard of him? No. Yeah, don't well, worry about it. That doesn't mean anything. No, I haven't heard of anybody. Canada is responsible for probably the biggest sale I have on Moto Lure, the Chugger, because they use them, they buy about six packs, so they use them to musky fish with. Oh, yeah. And apparently the muskies just, you know, they hit it once and just completely destroys the lure, and they just tie another one on and go again. Wow. But uh, for some reason, I, I, I am this summer going to fish for the first time. For musky, I'm going to do it in Kentucky, though. I'm going to use my, my chugger and see how it goes. Yeah, and a nice eight-foot steel lead, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I've never caught a musky in all the years I've fished. Most bass fishermen catch them because it's an accidental deal. Where they're hitting right, and what right. they're using is the same kind of stuff we'd go for bass, and, of course, the musky come in and just rip our line to shreds, right? So Exactly. My father actually had a Kentucky State record back in the 50s or late 40s, and I think it was like a 35-pounder. Whoa. And uh, cause that, that was kind of the breakoff point. Kentucky's where the tiger muskie, you don't see it in Tennessee, just Kentucky. And uh, it gets a little warm uh, just as you go south, so it's cold enough to hold them. And uh, he was bass fishing uh, with a river runt or one of those old lures and caught this thing state record, held it for a week, and the doctor went out next week and caught one that was 37 pounds. Oh, man. Hate when that happened. <laughs> All right, well, listen, let's get off the fishing here. You and I could rattle on about that for a little bit. You, I know. you got a choice here. You want to give us some highlights from your time in the Navy or, or some highlights from your time as a Pillsbury Doughboy? Listen, the highlights of my time in the Navy will take less time because uh, I was. it was great going in and even better getting out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
I cannot believe uh, that you worked for Pillsbury. I did. I was uh, I was a, a salesman for them. I, I had worked prior uh, getting out of school. I I started with Wasserstrom Wine and Import Company, so I represented uh, Leonard Kreuch out of Germany and everything. And wine hadn't really taken off in restaurants at that time, so I had kind of uh, new ground to break, and it was, it was fun to do. And then Pillsbury hired me out of that to go to a three-state area, which was Kentucky, Ohio, and West Virginia, that nobody else wanted because it was the worst, you know, just the most depressed in Appalachia, basically, yeah. southern Ohio. Yeah. And uh, so I took that over and... Uh, Turned a twenty thousand a year territory into hundred and forty thousand a year in about six months. It's because of the hair, isn't it? It's because of the hair. I know it is. It was the hair. It must have been. But I was fair. I was Phil Pillsbury's fair-haired boy, and and then I left after about a year and a half. I went to Nashville and started my. I accepted the Lord uh, right during that time, and my whole life changed, whole direction of my life, and everything else. And I just kind of gave in, gave up, and went where God wanted me to go. And, uh, apparently that was Nashville, and that's where I went, and uh, well, what started point, all over again. At what point, Chuck, did you realize that economics and sociology just weren't your thing? <laughs> yeah, well, probably about the second year into them. I, I, it took me at least that long. But Actually, it's, it's, it's kind of uh, fun to, to look at the economics and sociology, especially in today's world. I mean, how they uh, rub up against each other and clash and... It's just very interesting what's going on in our society today, I think. But, Did you ever think about uh, how life would have been different had your band, Avant Garde, kind of taken off and maybe you ended up, you know, bigger than Vince or Amy in Nashville? Yeah, I would have had a very different life, obviously, on the road uh, and, uh, you know, bus tours and stuff like that. I, as I look back on it, I, I probably would not have enjoyed it that much, I don't think. Uh, I love music, but... Uh, it was it was really hard for me. I, I mean, I spent eight years in Nashville, really thrashing away at it, and then then I was a Nashville-based artist that was uh, recording in Los Angeles for about a year, year and a half at RCA. And then when I finally made the move, I, I dabbled in it and had a, a couple of other hit records that were, uh, you know, kind of real minor country hits. So I was always trying to find my way. It's funny, you watch American Idol, these guys always say, well, I don't really know who you are. You, you don't define yourself. And I was one of those people that was, you know, I could sing opera, I could sing, you know, jazz, I could sing country, I could sing blues. Hmm. And I never, and I liked them all, so I never really defined myself. And, and it was very, very difficult for me. Well, I wonder what kind of a fan base you have. I mean, I know you had at least one fan. Uh, you know, Jonathan Winters. <laughs> mother. No, Jonathan Winters was a big fan, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Jonathan, uh, Jonathan had heard a song that I wrote, uh, or that I, yeah, I wrote called Deja Vu, and I had done it at RCA in Los Angeles. As a matter of fact, it was a big, you know, you know, thirty-five piece orchestra with strings and all that kind of stuff, and and so it was a big kind of vanilla sounding thing, and and a friend of his came to Nashville because he wanted to be a writer. His name was Jimmy Smith, and I never met Jimmy. But he had met my my co-writer, and my co-writer never mentioned this to me. And and to put all this in perspective, since 1958, I guess, or, or earlier, when Jonathan Winters kind of exploded on the scene, I think it was the late 50s, uh, he was like my hero. I, I just thought he was brilliant. And, you know, uh, Robin Williams and I have talked about this, and Robin just, you know, gives it up. And he said, you know, I, I, if it weren't for Jonathan Winters, I would not exist. Right. Uh, and so I, a lot of people had that in common. He was very oblique in his humor and very smart, and, and uh, he was able to make something out of nothing and make it very, very funny. He could take linoleum and do something with it that was just really funny. Now, that's a gift. So, uh, Anyway, with all of that in mind, and knowing that I judged a lot of my friends on whether they liked Jonathan Winters or not, because if they didn't, I figured we had nothing in common. Uh, I get this call because Jimmy Smith has taken back a record to Los Angeles and played it for Jonathan, and Jonathan calls me, cold calls me in Nashville. I'd never, I'd never talked to him. I didn't believe for like probably five minutes that it was him. I kept saying, okay, is this Larry Henley? Is this so-and-so? I kept going through a list of my friends. He kept saying, no, it's Jonathan Winters. And I made him do Maud Frickard for me. <laughs> and I, I did. I, made, I said, I, well, I didn't make him, but I asked him, I said, well, do Maud Frickard for me. You know, like, and he said, what? <laughs> Can you imagine? And I said, I said, no, let me hear you do Maud Frickard. And so he did this little piece like that, and he said, okay, you do it. And I said, okay, and I brought up this real obscure kind of thing he'd done on an album, you know, like 40 years before, and started it like that. And he said, where in the world did you dig that up? 
<laughs> well, that's, you know, you from one of your albums. Anyway, he invited me to come to Los Angeles and do The Tonight Show. And I did. I was very excited about it. And I came in to record, and so I was going to do The Tonight Show. And uh, there's a big story that's literally part of a book that I have to write about meeting Jonathan. He didn't like me, and it was it was real interesting. And anyway, we eventually uh, got all that put together. I went on The Tonight Show, and Merv Griffin saw that show. And then Merv called my publisher in New York, Al Gallico, and asked if he could get in touch with me. He did, and asked me if I would stay over for another week and do his show. And so I went on and did his show. And after his show, Merv Griffin took me backstage, and he said, uh, I'd like for you to meet some men that I work with who run my companies and uh, and talk with them. So we went back, and as we approached the door, he said, uh, did you ever think about being a game show host? And this is exactly what I thought. I didn't say this, Drew, but I did think this. <laughs> I thought a game show host, that's a guy with a bad mustache and equally bad jacket that cares nothing about what you have to say. <laughs> I'll never forget thinking that. And I thought, oh, I can't say that. No. So Because I thought he was being complimentary. And so I went in, and, they, and uh, they asked me to stay over, and I did, and that was Wheel of Fortune. You know, I can imagine. <laughs> God was definitely in that because I was the most reluctant game show host. I didn't want to be a game show host. Yeah, but that, I, was, I think that's what made you such a good game show host is because you didn't fit the formula. No, not in any. I had no clue what I was doing. I changed. I literally changed game show hosts and how they dealt with audiences and how they dealt with their their contestants. By virtue of the fact that I was totally ignorant, I had no clue what I was doing, and people seemed to like that. <laughs> that's why, that's why, I, that's why people listen to my so, show. Yeah, all, all of a sudden I watched Bob Barker being really nice to people. I'm like, well, it's not like he, he didn't used to be that way. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny. It well, was. It was funny. I mean, I, I was. I thought it was humorous. Look, you know, uh, Christmas 81 must have been just wild for you, saying goodbye after, was it seven years of hosting Wheel of Fortune? Yeah, seven years. Merv and I couldn't come to an agreement on uh It's really funny. Merv's passed away now, so I'll talk about it, but I wouldn't talk about it before, because quite frankly, uh, Jonathan Winters and, and Merv Griffin are really responsible for my career, and I have to be grateful for that. But sure. Merv was not very nice to me. <laughs> he didn't like me very much, because I was kind of rebellious, I guess, in some ways, and wouldn't do everything he asked me to do. And and so uh, he claimed that uh, I came in to, to talk to him, and I said that God had told me how much money I wanted to make. Well, I would, number one, if anybody knew me, I would never, ever say something like that, uh, no matter what my testimony was. It's just not how I'm built. And so he said, I didn't agree with God, and so I fired him. <laughs> he didn't actually fire me. We just couldn't come to agreement on you know, on uh, on money. Well, the real story behind that was William, uh, NBC was ready to pay the difference, uh, the weekly difference, and he said, if you pay him, I'll take the show to CBS. He was mad at me. <laughs> well, yeah, but hold on. Well, he was more mad at NBC for wanting to top it up a hundred grand, right? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, he was just mad that his authority, I think, was undercut yeah. more than anything else, that uh, it was disrespectful, I suppose. Yeah. I, you know, it's hard to say how people think, but I, I would guess that that's probably what it was. And so he just said, he gave him the ultimate thing. He said, you know, you uh, you do this with Chuck Woolery, and I will take the show to CBS because my contract's up, too. And he hired Pat Sajak, and the rest was history. Well, you've talked publicly about maybe feelings of regret over that whole kind of uh, negotiation. Well, you know, it's a, it's a strange thing. Uh, when you're younger and you're new and, you know, come to think, I was only supposed to do that show for 13 weeks. I wasn't supposed to do it for seven years. I, I kind of felt stuck, uh, even though I had the number one show on, on television as far as daytime. Uh, I just felt stuck because it was, wasn't anything that I ever aspired to, and I didn't appreciate where I was and what I had. And I thought, well, you know, at least... Uh, what I was negotiating for, just so the audience knows, is I was trying to get parity in the marketplace with everybody else that I was up against and was beating. They were making more money than I was, and they were making more money than after seven years than Griffin had approached me to continue for another seven-year contract. And so what I it was a very interesting lesson. Number one, I was right, but I lost the job. Um, so being right all the time doesn't really cover where you're supposed to be and, and there was a big spiritual lesson involved in this uh so that my regret was i felt like probably god wanted me to stay there and i kind of didn't get into that i i really kind of listened to my press the people around me right 
and and did things that I, I probably would not have done had I thought it through. I just bitten the bullet yeah. and said, you know, this is going to be made up someplace else, obviously, and and obviously it was. I mean, uh, the difference is that uh, I'm coach uh, plucking a banjo, talking to a goose on an American Airlines, and uh, Pat Sajak's in a G450. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, it it turned out that your 1969 solo release was sort of prophetic, right? I've oh been, yeah, I've been wrong. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It just uh, it was, and it was really funny. I've had very few prophecies over me in my life, but Jack Hayford actually prophesied over me, and it involved all of this, and I didn't see it. I was just so blinded to it that I didn't see it. So, quite frankly, my regret was that I didn't really follow what I felt like God wanted me to do. I followed my own heart, which was the wrong move to make. So that's what I regret. Yeah, but Chuck, I mean, seriously. It wasn't really the money as much as it was the kind of attitude. But but then I was reclaimed. You know, Lord can always take garbage and turn it into gold, so he did with me. But they were pulling a 44 share, were they not? Yeah. Yeah, it was was huge numbers. They were just enormous. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I, I've also heard that the executive producer of Love Connection, Eric Lieber, was uh, kind of a kind of a kind of a tough cat to work with. Yeah, people would call me and say, "Can you get me a job on Love Connection?" I said, "Yes, but I won't." <laughs> Why? I said, "Because I want you to like me for the rest of your life, and if you go to work for Eric Lieber, you won't like me and never speak to me again. So I'm not going to get you a job. Sorry." <laughs> and most people didn't understand it, but I was right. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was, he was pretty tough. Well, you're not the first person to say that, so that's not new. That's not no, new. No, I, I, well, it was, you know, his best friend said it to me one time. <laughs> I looked at him and I said, really? Because I'd just gone to work there. I said, oh, really? Is that right? He said, oh, brother, wait, just wait. Yeah. <laughs> would you, uh, would you rather work for, uh, for Merv Griffin, Eric Lieber, or Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah, right. You used to watch the Osbourne? Uh, well, everybody watched it. Well, I mean, you know, it was like a train wreck. The Prince of Darkness, it was just, it was hysterical. Yeah. He would stand up and say, I'm the original Prince of Darkness, and he couldn't find his way to the bathroom. <laughs> Which may be, you know, the Prince of Darkness. I don't know. I always felt like the Prince of Darkness, his greatest invention was probably the fly, so, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, the first time I spoke, well, actually, Pat Boone was on last week, and that's kind of our connection today, and Pat tells his Ozzy Osbourne story about, you know, the Osbournes. Yeah, he bought the house next door. Yeah, he'll be in the he You said, know what? I, and the funny thing about that, before you get into the Pat Boone story, I almost bought that house. Oh, really? Yeah, like a year before Ozzy and his family moved in. By the way, I've never met Ozzy. I'm talking to him. I'm talking about him like I knew him. I've never met him. Okay. But before they moved in, a year before that, I was negotiating for that house. Can you imagine you and Boone beside each other? That'd be like a holy terror in that neighborhood. Oh, my gosh. I can't even imagine. I mean, me and Boone in the same car is a trouble. So, you know. <laughs> well, he always tells the story about Ozzy saying uh, uh, that uh, the, the Pat, Pat Boone is, is the best neighbor we've ever had. He never called the cops once, you know? And, yeah, right. Anyway. <laughs> Boone's kind of an interesting guy. I've always loved Pat. Pat's godfather to one of my children. And, uh, and so I've known Pat and Shirley, you know, for 40, 30, 30 some years, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Pat, you know, does the tattoos and all that kind of He does really silly. And people think, well, that's so dumb. What is he? Listen to this. Pat Boone, I'm just going to give you a real quick synopsis of Pat Boone. Okay. Pat Boone was a 4.0 student at Columbia. He had five, he had a family of five, four girls and his wife, I think family of five, and a full-blown career. He's not stupid. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Pretty smart guy. Exactly. All right, well, folks, uh, on the phone with Chuck Woolery. Chuck, some people might find it a tad ironic that the host of the dating game and love connection has been married four times. I, I listen. They think you think they find it ironic. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's more than ironic to me. I never expected to be married more than once. <laughs> listen, you. I mean, that's a story. That is. You, if you're going to write about anything, you've got to write about that. These oh, marriages, I, 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 seriously. I can, I can hardly face it myself. <laughs> is it fair to ask uh, the, the one and only Chuck Woolery what the secret to a happy marriage is? Is it getting married at the Bellagio? That's got to be the secret. Well. You know, it's funny, if you go through, you would think that someone who has had uh, failed marriages on one side or the other over their lives really wouldn't have much to say on it. And yet, at the same time, it's uh, almost like the NASA proving ground. You know, the missiles go up, they blow up, they fail, they fall over. And and through that, you finally learn how to get one launched. So uh, it, it's funny, I think maturity comes in different people at different times. And I don't care who you are or how you carry yourself. Uh Obviously, I was very mature in choices that I made and things that I did, and and I hope that I can uh, show my children to be a little more, uh, uh, how should I put it, um, use a little more discretion 
than right. I than I did. I, I I just made bad choices, really, more than anything else. And I, and, I, and some of the women that I, I was married to made bad choices than me too. We really didn't have much in common. Right. So you know. You've got to be friends before you can be anything. Well, Chuck, you know, some of the Jesus people are going to hear the fact that you've been married four times and you're Mr. Jesus guy here and, and sort of go, yeah. whoa, what's, what's that all about? Seriously. I know. Hey, listen, I was supposed to speak at a church not too long ago, and they had uh, already sent the money in or something because they were going to pay me to come in and do it. And I said, okay. And so so they sent the money in. Well, they found out I've been married uh, more than once. <laughs> That's how I like to refer to it, Drew, <laughs> yeah, if you okay. don't mind. Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, anyway. They found out that I'd been married more than once, and they called me and said, well, we, we just can't have him speak to our congregation because he just doesn't have the authority to do that. And my agent was just, you can only imagine a Hollywood agent would handle that remark. <laughs> yeah. He said, are you kidding? I know you, Chuck. You're nothing like it. And I said, look, Fred, it's okay. Send the money back. He said, well, they won't take it. I said, well, send it back to them anyway and tell them that I understand, and I appreciate that. Yeah. And that's quite all right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well done. Uh, Chuck, who, who stood up for you with Kim at the Bellagio? Uh, you know what? All my friends are dead. There was nobody left, so my son did. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah, my son actually stood up for me, my 19-year-old. Okay. And, and uh, then Mark Young. Oh, wait a minute. That's right. Mark Young did. Actually, you know, it, when you get to be my age, you can remember things in the past, but it's stuff in the present. You know, you know. it hadn't been that long ago. <laughs> yeah, it was Mark Young, my best friend. Uh, how many children? I have eight. I've, uh, they're by hook and by crook. I adopted one. I've uh, got some stepchildren. And uh, I remember looking at my, my now wife uh, five years ago, and I, I said to her, we were standing, we were outside of a, a venue where we'd gone to see a concert, and uh, we were in the car, and there were all kinds of cars around. And she said, um, and it was like our third date. And she said, uh, well, Chuck, uh, uh, how many children do you have? <laughs> eight. Eight? Are you kidding? I said, no, I'm, you know, I've been responsible for eight children. And I said, i got a couple of them are, you know, a few years older than I am, but other than that, most of them are younger. And she said, uh, oh, is that a joke? And I said, I was hoping. <laughs> so, so she said, uh, and I knew the next question was coming. I was looking out from the windshield, and she's sitting there very quiet. And she said, well, how old are you? And I said, well, Tim, you know, you can Google me in about five minutes, so it would be kind of silly for me to lie to you. I said, not that I would, but I'm, I'm 63. And when I said 63, I looked at her and I said, gee, you look like an F-18 pilot pulling 7Gs. I mean, just... <laughs> <laughs> and she said, 63? I can't believe it. And I said, well, how old are you? And she said, well, I'm 38. I said, oh, well, that's pretty young. I didn't know you were that young. She said, well, you think I look older? I said, no, 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 no. Oh, yeah. It's like, do I look fat? It's like, do I look fat? Yeah, exactly. Don't go there. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, so she, said, uh, she said, well, you know, it's just a number. And I said, okay, look, let's you and I have to have a talk here. Well, yeah, I'll be real honest about this. I know I don't look like I'm 63, and I know I don't act that way. But I am 63, and it's not just a number, because you being, I've done 38 to 48. It was easy. And in fact, I've done 48 to 58, and it was easy too. But I've never done 63 to 73. And if you and I are going to have a relationship, I got a feeling about 68 or 69, things start falling off. You don't know where they came from. <laughs> and so you need to think about this really seriously. She made the move anyway. Eventually, I think about two years later, we were married. So yeah, uh, you've got you guys have got a bigger spread than Frank and Kathy Lee. No, no, unless they're living in a three, you know, walk-up apartment. Uh, we don't have a big, big spread. No, I mean spread in age. You know, they're twenty-five years oh. difference. <laughs> Gee whiz! Oh, well, I thought you thought I lived on a ranch or something. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I started to look outside for my cattle. I didn't see a one. Age <laughs> uh, spread? Yes, yes. There's a. Yeah. It is. I told her. I said, you know, if, if when I die. Uh, you will still be standing, I guarantee you, and so you need to think about that. I mean, we I, I didn't pull any punches with her at all because, uh, you know, it's it's. I think it's difficult for a woman who picks an older man, and she's much younger, and Kim's very pretty and very talented and very creative, and and uh, she has a lot to offer someone. And I said, you know, I hate for you to give up your life for, for me, and she said, well, I don't care. So, well, that was romantic. That. I don't care. It's like, okay, that's how you feel, and let's go. Chuck, obviously, 1983 was uh, was a tough year for you. Uh, can you can you talk to us a little bit about Chad? Yeah, I can't. It's, it's hard for me to do. It. You know, it's 
it's funny. I can sit on in a room one on one with people and and talk about it. And uh, seems like when I get on the radio, maybe I have never really done this on on the telephone on the radio before. So let's see if I can get through it. Um, Chad was my 19 year old, and uh, the family had been skiing in Mammoth, uh, California, for that weekend. It was New Year's weekend of Christmas or week. And I had Kitty, Chad, Carrie, Melissa, Jennifer, and Courtney. So all those children were with me. And uh, so uh, I, I was married to Terry Nelson, who was David Nelson, who was Ozzy, Harry, and R- Ricky, and David. David was my father-in-law for 17, 18 years. So um, we were all up there together. And uh, Chad and I got into a disagreement over something, and uh so I, he, he finally got mad and got on a bus and went back to Los Angeles. And I was upset, and he was upset, and we had a terrible disagreement. And, well, it wasn't terrible, but it was a bad disagreement. And uh, so we're kind of left there alone. And New Year's Eve, uh, we're all sitting around, and we find out on television on ABC, as did Harriet, that Rick's plane had gone down and crashed, and he was killed. So... Everybody packed up and got all their stuff together to go back to Los Angeles and uh, be with a family, and they were going to have a funeral and and everything, and it was pretty tragic. And So we drove back to L.A., and I remember during the night of the funeral, or the day before the funeral, I called Chad, and I said, okay, Chad, you know, let's put all our differences aside. Uh, you need to be at the funeral tomorrow. It's at 3 o'clock at Forest Lawn, and this is a family thing, so do not miss that. Do not be late. Please be there to support the family in this. And he said, okay, Dad, I will. And uh, we hung up. And so uh, went through the funeral. Sean did, or Dad didn't show up. And I was, you know, irritated with it, but uh, there were other things, other dynamics going on. And, and he didn't show up, and he didn't show up, and he didn't show up. And so finally that night we're over at Devon and David's house, uh, Harriet's uh, daughter-in-law and son and uh, she's there and I was consoling her and talking to her about how tough it must be to lose a child and all this and uh, Gary Collins and uh, David came over to me with uh, another Joe Byrne another producer in Los Angeles and uh, David put his hand on my shoulder and said you know uh, could you come in the bedroom and just sit down for a minute we, we have something we want to tell you and they, they seemed really serious you know it was so I said of course so I walked in and uh, David, or I don't know who was who it was, but someone looked at me and said, uh, uh, "Chuck, Chad's gone. He he was killed this morning." And I I couldn't believe it. Hmm. And uh, so I, you know, I was in total denial. I just couldn't believe it had happened. He'd been on a motorcycle that I told him never to drive again, and he was running from the police that weren't chasing him. I mean, it was just a comedy of errors that weren't that wasn't very funny and he hit a wall and and crushed his skull and with a helmet on and everything else and killed him instantly and so uh, it was a it was a tragic time just absolutely tragic uh and we buried Sean or buried uh, Chad. It's funny I keep saying Sean because Sean reminds me my my nine, my thirteen year old reminds me so much of, of Chad in, in so many ways. And uh, anyway, we buried him and got through that. And I, I would go on television and try to share this because I knew that I wasn't the only person in the world that this ever happened to. That there were millions of people that it happens to, and sure. and just try to you know go through this story. And it, it got just like it did a minute ago with you. I, I, I couldn't even say it was, you know, 1981. I, I couldn't even say the year, uh, and I would break down. And, and so I, I just decided I would never talk about it on television again And um, because I was like a blithering idiot. I, it's, it's, it never leaves you. I mean, so out of order, and anyone who's lost a child knows that. It's, uh, it's a tough time to go through. And he, he was a very, you know, handsome, uh, funny smart, bright child, like so many other children in this world that you lose, and young man, actually, and it just seems like such a waste, but, you know, and and then I, I even had a vasectomy. I wouldn't have any more kids. I said, that's it, I, I won't have any more children, and then I had a visit vasectomy and had two more, and they were both boys. You know, I, I wonder about the having 
another boy after losing a boy. That has got to be a weird thing. Well, when my wife said to me that, you know, you've had children with people that you didn't really like, and that's exactly what she said, and I want to, I want to have a, a child with you. And I, I had to really think about it, and I just, I just told her, I said, Terry, you have no idea how afraid I am to do this. And out of this came Michael. Uh, Michael was born um, 19 years ago. He's Chad's age now. And a very strange thing happened. It, it's funny, in my life, I can't remember too many times that God has spoken to me, but I, I know the experience, and I, and, I, and I understand the process. It usually doesn't come at a time that you expect it, at least it hasn't for me. Uh, it's almost been like out of left field, so it's like, okay, it's me, I'm here, listen to me. And you do because you go, wow, I'm even thinking about that. And he used Michael to show me a very, a very dynamic thing in the life of people worldwide, which was really interesting. I, I was living in Beverly Hills at the time, and I had a house, had a house with a pool, and and Michael, uh, Chad had been gone, you know, ten years, something like that. And Michael was in the corner of the pool sitting. He was like six, eight months old. He wasn't very, I mean, however old it is when they can kind of sit up. And he was still in diapers. And I was looking at him and kind of holding his shoulders and propping him up. And I was telling him how much I loved him and, and how much he meant to me and talking about his blue eyes. And I mean, I was just going, just polar, just pouring, you know, one thing after another out of my heart for this little boy. <clears throat> and tears were welling up in me. And I was just, how much he meant to me and... And uh, God stopped me right in the middle of it, and I wasn't expecting it. It, it. it just shocked me. And and when God speaks to you, it's usually in like what I call a microburst. It's like bam, a lot of information or something really important comes in a millisecond and it's yep. gone. Yep, yep. And uh, so He said, uh, Chuck, uh, that's exactly how I feel about you. Wow. And it was pretty strong, you know. It was it was a very very strong uh, and powerful experience. So, you know, I thought about that for a while, and I picked up Michael and I wiped him off and dried him down and walked over to my office, which was just steps away from the pool. And I put my hand on the door, and God literally said, "I'm not finished yet. I have more for you." Uh, but it wasn't harsh or anything like that. It was very tender and and very quiet. And and I just stopped with my hand on the door and I said, "What is it, Lord?" He said. You know that I am no respecter of persons. And then it was a pause, like he was waiting for me to answer. And I said, yes. yes. <laughs> and he said, if I'm no respecter of persons, I love everybody, just like I told you I loved you, and just like you love this little boy. The end. Wow. So it was a very, it was a very powerful experience for God to show his love to me and then explain to me that this, although I should be, overwhelmed and it's a personal relationship and all that kind of thing that it's that it's special but it's special for everyone hmm. and i just thought that that was really kind of cool oh incredibly cathartic very healing and very personal you know we we often rattle on about this personal god stuff but for god to individually touch you like that that's pretty amazing chuck yeah, it was it was amazing for me that's for sure it, it does you know it's really funny i think god picks you up when you're when you're down the most, or his timing is just so incredibly impeccable that he finds a time to talk to you and, and do for you and and prop you up when you maybe don't even think you need it, but you look back and go, "That's exactly when I needed it." Hmm. You know, earlier in the show, it's funny that you uh, you should describe what you just described because earlier in the show we asked a question. A lady wanted to know if she's the only one out there who feels that her faith wouldn't survive if her daughter was abducted, sexually tortured, and raped, because there's a story going on up here in the Toronto area of a young girl, Tori Stafford, and uh, they've just arrested uh, somebody in her disappearance, and the speculation is pointing towards uh, a lot of nasty stuff. And this lady is saying, I'm not sure whether my faith could really survive that sort of thing. And, and I think most parents look at God and go, mess with me all you want, just don't touch my kids. Well, I have a feeling... Ultimately, that's what God's going to say to Satan. Mess with me all you want, but don't touch my kids. Uh, wow. I, you know, it, it's very difficult to... Uh, look, we live in an evil world. 
uh, Satan is in charge of this world, and we're the only conduit that God has to change this world. And uh, that's what I, and ultimately, that's what I think we were created for, was to change the dynamic of the spiritual world, and God uses people to do that through his Holy Spirit, through the power of his Holy Spirit. There are a lot of things that go on in this world that are unexplainable, and I, I'm certainly not smart enough to explain them or to understand them. And I know that though we look through a glass darkly now, there will be a time when we see it, you know, crystal clear. But, I, you know, that that's a very tough thing to handle. When you, I, I, I dream about things like that. I'm sure that a lot of parents do. They, they have these terrible dreams when something's happened to your child and, and how you would deal with it, and, or something's happening with you, and how you'd respond to it, and uh, and and yeah, I mean, your your faith is tested in a lot of ways. I would just only hope and pray that I would never be put in a position by by Satan to have my faith tested on that level. I mean, no parent would want to go through that. No, no person would want to go through that. No, and uh, anyone could go through that and keep their their faith together. I mean, you know, I'll tell you something, Drew. You, you, you go back in history and you think about the Mongols. You think about Hitler. You think about the things that people have been put through, the torture they put through, and yet their faith has sustained them through all of that. Uh, it's a pretty powerful statement. Well, I keep thinking about you as a father and you having these eight kids and the adoption and Chad and all of this. I mean, you're, you are... You're an amazing man. You really are. And I know, you, you know you're you quick to chuckle about that. But let's talk about your kids just for a second. Have you got Melissa, Kitty, Michael, Sean, Carrie, Courtney, Chad? Did I get? Did I miss one? Yeah. I, I lost Kitty a couple of years ago. Okay. Kitty, Kitty died. And so I've now lost two children. Oh, man. Yeah. So. You, know, you know, that kind of stuff, I don't know whether this is true or not, because I just don't know that much about all the details of your life. But did you have a quadruple bypass in 96? I did. I had a quadruple bypass and an aorta aneurysm, a full aneurysm uh, surgery about a year and a half later. Okay, seriously. Uh, we get wake-up calls once in a while, but you've had more than your fair share of stuff, and I wonder how these these individual incidents, what kind of impact have they had on your spiritual life? Well, everybody says that my uh, the four-way bypass and the aorta aneurysm, I, I'm still in denial about it, and they're, they're probably right. Uh I went into the hospital. I, I remember I went into Cedars in, in the morning. I, I, what I've been, I've been doing wind sprints. Uh, this may be this may be your, some people in your audience may relate to this or relate to something in their life. I don't know why I'm telling you, so I'm going to tell it anyway. <laughs> uh, so, so I was doing wind sprints uh, on El Avado in Beverly Hills there, and it's a pretty long block. And and uh, this particular morning, I went out to do them, and and I got to the end of the block, and it took me 15 minutes to recover. And I was just breathing real hard, and I was like, gosh, what was that all about? And ran back up again real hard, and again, like 10 or 15 minutes just to kind of recover and get my breath back. I was like, well, something's really wrong here. So I thought I had lung cancer or something, and uh, went to the doctor and uh, went to a cardiologist in Beverly Hills there. And uh, first thing he did was take uh, x-rays of my lungs and brought them back up, and he went, uh, okay, what's this right here? And they pointed to a spot, and I said, no, that's been with me since I was born. That's Kentucky. That's probably from the coal field. That's just, he said, oh, yeah, 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 that's, that's real typical of that area, so that's nothing. He said, okay, you're clear. And I said, I'm clear? You should have been wrong with me. He said, no, 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 I don't mean you're clear. I mean your lungs are clear. That's fine. He said, uh, Chuck, you got a heart problem. You're not, you're, your lungs aren't being oxygenated. That's why you're not, you, why you don't have any wind. And I said, What? And he said, uh, so anyway, they, they did a exploratory operation on me, and he was in for like 15 minutes. And he was a Jewish guy, and he kept saying, oh, my Lord, oh, my Lord. <laughs> and I said, uh, yeah, are you a Christian? <laughs> he said, no. And I said, oh, okay, you keep calling on the name of the Lord. I thought maybe. And it was a joke, and he laughed. And so he said, I, I, he said look, I, I'm getting out of here. So he pulled out, and he said, uh, I, he said, Chuck, I have no idea how you walked in here. He said, your widow maker's like 98% closed. He said, you're in real trouble. Wow. And I said, really? He said, oh. He said, you, he said, you can't leave the hospital. We're going to operate on you right away. Well, I left the hospital, being who I am. <laughs> and I said, well, I'm going to go home. And so I went home. And, and what I called all my friends and said, you know, this is going to have I've never had an operation before, and this may be it. And so it was probably one of the best weekends of my life. Uh, and uh, so Monday I showed up to the operation, went in the theater of operation. I'm laying there, and they apparently... Uh, 
had me sedated. Uh, I don't know about this because only the doctors and nurses were laughing about it and talking about it. I apparently, after I was sedated, sat straight up on the table and said, look, I'm the only conservative in California, and Bob Dole's running for president. If I die, somebody's got to take my place. Who's going to do it? And I laid back down and went to sleep. <laughs> I, I didn't know I did it. <laughs> what he told me about I told Elizabeth Dole that she just about died. So, so, so anyway... Uh, you know, I did that and, and uh, came through the operation. Well, the first thing I did was I was I, ICU or whatever that is, intensive care, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I got up and started walking around and pulling things with me. I said, gee, you know, it's a little soon to do that. And I went down the next day and got a cup of coffee. And the third day I called my wife and I said, look, there's a nurse here who wants to give me a bath. And the problem is she wants to go in the shower with me, and that's just not going to happen. <laughs> and she said, okay, look, Chuck, you know, you're a big boy. Uh, she has to clean you up. You know, come on. She's a nurse. I said, no, nah, I'm not going to do that. So I said, come pick me up. She said, I'm not going to come pick you up. It's been 72 hours or less since you just had major heart surgery, and I'm not picking you up. I said, well, if you don't, I'm coming home. So she laughed, and, you know, about three hours later, I showed up at the front doorstep with, with my clothes on. I just put my clothes on and walked out of the hospital and walked home. And it was about five miles. <laughs> you know, I felt pretty good. <laughs> and I never looked back. And I just went on with it, you know. And uh, and my, my poor cardiologist kept saying, are you afraid of dying? I said, absolutely not. But, I mean, I don't want to encourage it. But I felt good, so I left. So... Uh, so that's been okay. I mean, it's been 11 years or whatever it's been, and uh, I don't even keep count anymore. And uh, oh, man. So then, like, you know, he said, look, I found this aorta problem you have, so that's got to be taken care of. Now, I did I did elect that operation and went in, and, and it would have burst. I, I would have died from that. So that was that was one that, uh, you know, you got to just say God's watching after you because I had no clue that he thought that I had, you know, years to go with that, and it was paper thin. Wow. And so got that fixed, and I remember yeah. I went to Bel Air Country Club, and I was on the on the front tee, and I was talking to Jim Garner and Bob Newhart, and I said, okay, guys, I'm going to go out and uh, hit some balls. And they said, didn't you just get out of the hospital? And I said, yeah. I said, well, let's see your chest. And so I raised my shirt, and I had all these. <laughs> I still had the staples. Staples, I know. <laughs> I had these staples going down all the way to my situation from my chest, you know, and I mean, it was like I looked like, I look like Frankenstein. And they said, do you really think you ought to go out and hit ball? I said, well, if you start hearing me, like, boom, boom. I said, you'll know. I'm coming apart. Just come out and get me and bring me in. I think I hit three balls. I went, okay, this is not a good idea. And I went back home. Oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> I didn't have an interesting life enough. I try to add just a little more spice oh, to it by doing stupid things. I can imagine Bob Newhart uh, calling you Herman Munster from that point on, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, look, I mean, does hitting 70 in a couple of years mess with you at all? Uh, yeah, I guess. Uh, it's like um, I've been, you know, been accused of being the Dick Clark of this and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, age is a, yeah, I think it does. Yeah. I mean, the thing that I notice more than anything else is when people make decisions for shows now. See, I've done like five or six shows which is kind of unusual for someone like me. Most people do one or two shows in their career, and that's it. Right. Sometimes they last a long, long time. But, you know, the longest-lasting show I had was Love Connection, which is 11 years. and and then, But everything else has lasted about seven years, with the exception of Greed, which was two years. And uh, so I'm kind of looking for my next show, but I think the producers in Los Angeles are thinking, well, oh, like he's 68, you know, in four years he'll be 70. I don't know, we really want to spend the money. And, and, and so they, when they look at it like that, it's, I, I, it comes home to me that my age is probably in the way of working. And I love work, so hmm. so that's a little tough. Well, there's always Mr. Dingle. You could go back to that, maybe. <laughs> I could add no makeup. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> an 80-year-old mailman. That's right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Doing a Jonathan Winters voice, by yep. the way, if you think about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's what, when you mentioned that voice, that when Jonathan Winters said, I want you to do it back, I thought for sure you pulled Mr. <laughs> Dingle out of your hat, right? So, uh, no, I, I did Maudie for him, but I... <laughs> I was in the kitchen laying on linoleum. <laughs> I had to take some empties out. <laughs> I love Maud. Maud was great. Oh, yeah. Classic stuff. Classic. <laughs> well, listen, before we say goodbye, you know, I know we've talked uh, intermittently, and it's woven quite naturally into your story. 
And, and Chuck, I mean, I'm talking about your spiritual life. When it gets naturally woven in, it just comes across so authentic. So thanks for being an authentic Jesus guy. Way to go on that one. But what's uh, what's the origin of that? Did you grow up in a God family? When did you first buy into the Jesus stuff? Uh, I was a Presbyterian for until uh, I was 24, uh, Scotch Presbyterian. So, you know, um, I, I can't even explain that other than uh, it was pretty... Uh, religious. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, all, that's the only way I can explain it. It was kind of, you know, orthodoxy and religious and all that kind of stuff. Uh, my father uh, grew up in that church, and uh, it was pretty stiff, pretty cold. Uh, I mean, the people were delightful. But it had nothing to do with them. It just was an, kind of an interesting doctrinal kind of position. And when, when I accepted Jesus, um, it was because of a guy named Bubba Fowler, who was part of the group, who was a youth minister, and I and what it was, I really took the initiative. He didn't really push on me. I looked at him one day and said, you know, what, what is it about you that's so different? And he said that, and I kind of went, oh, really? Uh, I think I've heard that before. And then, but time went on, and finally I was curious. I said, well, you know what, I want this. And so I accepted the Lord, and uh, and things really changed for me. I, it, uh, it, it, it really did change my life, and, and I expected it to. I, I think that's the one thing that, that when I accepted the Lord, I, ex- I really expected him to keep his word, and I-, I wanted to keep my word. Little did I know that I would be the one who fell so many times in, in my walk with him, but, uh, but he never did. And uh, through many kinds of miraculous things and everything else, he really held it together. And, and I was also able to lead my father to the Lord uh, just before he died, which, and he wasn't on his deathbed when it happened, but it was before he died, like a year before he died. That's amazing. And it's just been a, a powerful influence. I, it also, I think if you're a true believer, you also really are so aware of your weaknesses and, and, and what you can't do in life, what you really think you can. It just, it just can't be any arrogance at all. I, the great thing about it, Drew, is I, I never felt responsible for my career or my success. And the reason I haven't felt responsible for it is because I know God put all that together. I really don't know why. I don't know why he's blessed me the way he has. I mean, I've had my problems, and I've had problems in my life, but I think most of us do uh, in varying degrees. Uh, but I know that I'm not responsible for it other than, than showing up and being willing and uh, and trusting him and uh, so it's been a wonderful it, it, it's always a wonderful walk with the Lord uh, you know I, I kind of find myself being jerked back and forth like a yo-yo but the problem is my fingers on the string when that's happening <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know it's uh, once I get my finger off the string it's uh, it, it's a much more pleasant <laughs> experience but I guess it's just human nature to to want to control and I'm not really a very controlling person you know I'm really not that way as a person and yet even I step up to the plate and try to control things and that I probably shouldn't even get close to thinking that I can do it well you know Chuck I didn't know a lot about this prior to getting you on the show we had a quick little chat last week and uh, you know I'd love to have you on hear your spiritual journey but one of our themes for our show is celebrities and the rest of us living messy lives with a real God in the middle of it. And I often quote a guy named Mike Iaconelli who wrote a book called Messy Spirituality. He's kind of a mentor by distance for me. And uh, the quote is that messy spirituality is the Christianity most of us live, but few of us admit. And I think you have fit quite nicely into our show. I mean, for you to be that open and honest and vulnerable with us, you know, the more than one marriage scenario... And, and thank even, you for that, Drew. Thank you, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but even, you know, with, with Chad and, and even with Kitty, which is something I didn't know, I mean, dude, what a you have gone through the ringer, and and here you are still saying, okay, I'm, I'm still following Christ. Uh, there's mess. I'm not perfect. I, I've struggled with this, that, or the other, and I've gone through the challenges, but I'm still here at the end of the day going, yeah, I, I, I'm following Christ. Well... You know, I, I appreciate uh, the fact that that uh, or the things that the nice things that you've said about me, and and uh, and I'll accept them. And uh, but I must tell you that uh, without the Lord leading me, uh, I always think about the column of fire and column of smoke. Uh, I, I guess I almost kind of visualize that as saying, you know, God is with me. God is is prepared me for this. God's prepared the journey. God's leading the way. God's preparing other people to meet me. Uh, 
I am so grateful, and I, and I mean this sincerely, I am so grateful for the little things in my life, not the big stuff, that's easy, but just the little things that God tends to and takes care of that, that I guess you would think seem so insignificant and yet so are vastly significant to each and every one of us. I am so imperfect, and yet I'm a good guy. I'm not a bad guy. Uh, I like people. I think people typically like me. But, boy, I, I, I would hate for anyone to look at me and say, that's the example I'd like to follow. <laughs> I want to go, no, 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 no. You follow the Lord. Don't follow me. Believe me, I'll, I'll tell you things are right and wrong and stuff like that, but please don't follow me. And, and I think that's a problem, uh, oddly enough, that most pastors make. I think pastors think they have to be perfect. Good call. And they don't. And they don't. Good call. Uh, they, in, in their in their imperfection, God gives them power to persuade, and I just believe that that's true. Yeah. Well, he's supposed to be strong in our weakness, right? I, I guess yeah. that's the deal, yeah. right? So, yeah. look, look. I wish you the best. I hope God blesses you in such a way that He freaks you right out. I mean, I really wish you and Kim the best. I really. Well, you do. know, thank you, Drew. It's, and, and I don't mean this in a patronizing way. I really don't. But it. I had no idea what to expect today, and it's Memorial Weekend, and I was kind of walking around the kitchen going, what am I doing on a radio show on Memorial Weekend? <laughs> it's been a real blessing to me. It really has, sincerely. It was uh, it was almost kind of cathartic in a way. I, I've enjoyed it very much, so I thank you for that. Well, I'll send you my bill. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't pay it. <laughs> <laughs> Chuck, it's been a real honor, real pleasure, mate. Thank Thanks for sharing. I appreciate it. Thanks, thanks very much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Chuck Willery on the Drew Marshall Show. I like that guy's heart. There's another champion. I'm enjoying the uh, the interviews that I get to do, meeting these people. Have a listen to Chuck Woolery singing in the background. A tune from years gone by, a song called Naturally Stoned <laughs> by his band called Avant Garde. All right, a short break on the show. When we come back, I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff we need to chat about. We'll figure it out when we get back. Stay with us. Like what you've heard? Listen again online at drewmarshall.ca. Just one thing that they do not seem to understand.